All right, so John, chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 1, and I'll tell you where we're going from there as we go. All right. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus said to him, What I am doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You'll never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not every one of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. All right, go ahead and jump down to verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. All right, this morning I'm back from my sabbatical. Some of you um, have been praying for me, and and I appreciate that. Um, I was away for eight weeks, and that sabbatical was a time designed to rest my heart, renew my vision. Um, It has been an intense labor um, in the church, a labor of love, but exhausting. And um, I want to kind of give some shout-outs, honestly. I want to thank Clint and Dan. They're my fellow elders here at Trailhead um, for insisting that, that I take that sabbatical. And in fact, that I take the full time, um, it was an incredible blessing, and it, and it actually turned out to be um, the perfect length of time. I want to thank Dan and Brian 
our staff guys, and, and honestly, the whole Deacon team for leading well while I was gone. I was able to completely unplug while I was gone um, and, and being able to know that I had leaders here who were leading well and taking care of the details and, and, and putting out the fires and whatever needed to be done, uh, man, just really helped me um, to, to, to step away. I want to thank Dan and Jake and Corey and Aaron, the guys that stepped up and, and bore the weight of preaching um, while I was gone. Again, that equipped me to step away. And I want to thank you guys, Trailhead Church, um, honestly, for your love for me and for my family. Um, it has been incredibly refreshing as I have just gotten um, words and notes and emails of encouragement and people praying for us. And so thank you for that. Um, it has meant a lot. In the second week of my sabbatical, Lauren and I um, went on a little trip. We took four days when we went to the Smoky Mountains. Um, I had never been there before. It was definitely one of the highlights of my trip. We got a little cabin uh, about, I don't know, 45 minutes south of Knoxville. We had a backdoor entrance into the park. We didn't have to go through Gatlinburg, um, thank the Lord. And um, anybody who's been down there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but while we were there, we went into this little area called Cades Cove. And if you've ever been to the Smokies, you've probably been there. It is this isolated community deep in the Smoky Mountains that has all kinds of historic stuff in it. And uh, we, we drove the loop and we hiked the trail out to the waterfall. And, and, and Lauren wanted to go visit one of the historic buildings. That usually isn't, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds great. But the reality is that stuff doesn't really light me up. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm more about let's go find a bear and provoke it and see what happens. You know what I'm saying? Like let's, let's do something that's gonna be a little bit more adrenaline. But when we do these things, I do them and I enjoy them because I love watching my wife. She usually loves this stuff. And, and, and really the enjoyment comes from just sharing the experience with her. And so we went to this building. It's the, the Primitive Baptist Church there in, in Cades Cove. And um, God really, and here's the thing, God nailed me there. I mean, he did. It was like, the, it was about a week uh, and a half into my sabbatical. And, and um, you know, I hadn't really connected with God much. I mean, it was really just unplugging and letting things slow down and calm. And I was there and it totally took me off guard. And I'm going to talk more about it next week. There's stuff that, that God started working in my head that, that um, we're going to unpack more next week. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was, was, it was interesting to me because inside the building, they had these pews all facing the forward, and then they had these pews facing the middle. And as the guy was telling us about it, he said, that's where they practiced foot washing. And so this group would get together, and the men would wash the men's feet, and the women would wash the women's feet. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's in the Bible. That's weird. Um, and so I went to John 13, which is the passage we read, and and, and started reading it. And really, over the course of my sabbatical, read the whole gospel, it was just sat in the gospel of John, and especially this chapter. And, and, and it really opened up to me. It was really um, an incredible experience. I just read and journaled um, and sat in this thing. And there are three main characters in this chapter. There's Jesus, and there's Peter, and there's Judas. And we're going to talk about all three characters, but this morning we're going to focus on Jesus. Next week, we're going to focus more on, on Peter and Judas. But this week, I want to focus on, on Jesus. And it's a pretty crazy story. And the more I sat in it, honestly, the more I understood Peter's reaction. Because when you read through this, you can kind of tell that um, Peter has a way of getting in his own way. You know what I'm saying? Like stepping on his own feet, tripping in everything he says. I mean, he's, he is um, a stand-up comedian with totally without intending to be. And, um, and so I want to give you a little bit of background, why he's responding so, so drastically so that we kind of understand the context. You guys ever watch Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe? Yeah, great show. I mean, I love watching that with my family. What's wonderful is this guy tries to find the dirtiest jobs in America, and then he goes in and tries them for a day. 
And so one, there's the cringe factor of the job itself, but two, he's a total newbie every time he shows up. And so he, he makes it even better because he's bad at whatever it is. So it usually gets messier or more disgusting or, you know what I'm saying? Like, and one time he was interviewed and, they, and he was asked, what were the top five dirtiest dirty jobs? What were the five that were the worst? And the number one was a sewer inspector in San Francisco. Now, I grew up in California. I was born in Oakland, right across the bay from San Francisco. San Francisco is an incredibly hilly community. It is very old, and the sewers run right underneath the streets, which means they go up and they go down. It's an area prone to earthquakes, and so they have to inspect the sewers because they don't want raw sewage running down their streets, right? So there's a whole team of people. That's their job. They crawl through these sewers and inspect them for cracks and breaks, right? And this isn't the clean water runoff, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is the raw sewage sewer line, right? And, uh, and, and Mike Rowe was hap- uh, lucky enough to find some cracks in the sewer line in his day of inspection, so he had to crawl through with a, a tub of mortar uh, strapped around his neck, and he was carrying the tools through there and kind of mucking it up, you know, and, and that, that was disgusting. And he said that was the worst. That was the number one Worst job. Understandable, right? Number two was being a snake wrangler. Um, That's entertaining. He would get into a water with a bunch of water snakes. He would grab it. He would make it vomit. And then they would take the vomit and they would examine it microscopically to see if the snake was healthy. That's a job, right? And uh, it was pretty bad. He said he got bit countless times. At first it hurt. Then it just got annoying. Um, Number two, worst job. There are three more that I'm not even going to get to because I'm not sure I can talk about them in public. They were bad, okay? Now, why am I bringing this up? Why am I talking about dirty jobs? Because the reality is being a foot washer in the time of Christ was about the lowest of the low. It was the worst. These guys walked around all day long in the dirt, in the mud, in animal feces, right? These, these were not nice, clean, paved roads. And they were walking around either in sandals or barefoot. And when they came to a home, they had to wash their feet. Because everything happens on the floor. In this culture, they they don't go sit at a raised table. They have low tables. And so they recline at table, which means they sit cross-legged on the floor and eat, or they actually recline and lay down next to the table to eat. Well, they don't want to be lying in their own filth. And so it was incredibly important that that they had somebody, especially if you were a homeowner, if you had any kind of, of wealth, you had a servant who would wash people's feet when they arrived at your home. And that servant was the lowest of the low. It wasn't great to be a servant. It was even worse to be this guy. Um, If you were a Jewish family, they customarily wouldn't give this job to a fellow Jew, even if that Jew were a slave in the household. They would give it to uh, a Gentile because it was considered um, that dishonorable to, to do that. You guys, Jesus shocks his disciples by getting up in the middle of the meal, taking off his outer robe, putting on a towel, and then methodically going from man to man, washing their feet. The disciples were understandably shocked. This is a culture that takes dignity incredibly seriously. People had their place, and everybody around them expected them to keep that place. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they, they didn't think of it as, as pride. They thought of it as dignity, right? And so men, especially older men in that culture, never ran. They walked everywhere, right? They just didn't do this. And so for him to do this was seen as humiliating to him and embarrassing for his disciples. 
it was incredibly uncomfortable. This isn't one of those things where like, oh, look, oh, what a cool thing he's doing. This was shocking. This was unsettling. It knocked them off balance. So why did he do it? Well, we know what the text says, right? Jesus actually gives a reason in the text for why he did it. He said, I do this so that you'll do it to each other, right? I did this so that you will understand a little bit about servant leadership, a little bit about loving one another, that I want you washing each other's feet. I want you to, I want you to do the unpleasant things for each other. I want you to serve one another. I don't want you to think of yourselves as more highly than, than the people around you, right? And that's actually a very real and good application. We're going to get into that next week, actually, when we dig in a little bit. See, we know what he told his disciples, that he did it to be an example. But this week, I want to focus on Jesus. And honestly, this week, I want to focus on some of the subtleties of this text. John is an incredible storyteller. John, the, the person who wrote this, he's poetic, he's intuitive, um, and, and this gospel is, is incredibly beautiful when you, when you just sit in it and let the subtleties rise to the surface. So I want to pull some of these out. Take a look at verse 7. Take a look at verse 7. In verse 7, right after um, Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says to him, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. You see what he's saying here? What he's saying is there's a hidden meaning in what I'm doing. There's something deeper going on here that you don't get yet and you can't get yet. There's something big that's going to happen. And after that happens, you'll be able to look back and understand this in a different way. Of course, he's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection right? Things that he has actually talked about, things that he has actually tried to warn them about, but they simply didn't have the, the framework to understand, right? And, and so he's saying, look, in the future, you're going to look back and you're going to understand some things here, right? See, I believe what's going on here is that Jesus is giving them an object lesson of the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. It's the good news about what Jesus has done for us and more importantly, who Jesus is that equipped him to do it. He's giving them an object lesson they'll never forget. So that later when they look back, this will help shape their understanding of who Jesus is and why it's important that he did what he did. I'm going to show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Pause there. Jesus knew this was his last night. He knew that he was about to be betrayed. In fact, in the section of the, the chapter we didn't read, Jesus actually dismisses Judas to go betray him. He knows what's going on. He knows that this is the night, that in just a few hours, he's going to be betrayed. That over the course of this night, he's going to be taken through a series of kangaroo courts that he's going to be hit and spit on and disrespected and humiliated. And the following morning, he would be scourged and crucified. He knew as he sat there with them that this was the night. It was time for him to fulfill the reason that he had come to earth. See, what's happening is, is at the very beginning of this chapter, John is pulling us back. He's like, there are some important events that happened this night, but it, to understand them, you need to look at the context of the big story. Take a look at verses three through five. It's really interesting because verses, um, starting in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
rose from supper. (laughs) The main clause of the sentence is Jesus rose from supper. (laughs) That's the sentence. Everything else is context. Knowing that he had come from God, was going back to God, and that God had given all things into his hand. Do you see what John's doing? John's taking us to the satellite or the, the Google satellite image view. You know what I'm saying? Like when you really pull way out and you can see the whole big picture. What he's saying is there's a story that takes place tonight, but to really understand it, you need to understand it in the context of the biggest story. See, each one of us have stories, the story of our lives, the story of of each day of our life, of the context of our own life, the story of our city, the story of our nation. When you pull out to the biggest view, you see there's a story of the world. And all of our stories weave together to tell one single great story, a story that begins with creation and ends with restoration, a story that is derailed by sin, but is redeemed by the sacrifice of the hero. It's the big picture, right? That's where John's taken us. What he's saying is, if you want to understand why Jesus rose from the supper table, you need to understand it in the context of the biggest picture, that Jesus came to become the Savior of the world, that Jesus came to redeem broke and lost and, 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 and sinful people. Jesus came to set right everything that was broken and set wrong. He came to bring light into a dark world. So Jesus is basically saying, look, man, I'm about to go. This is my last night, so I'm going to give you your last lesson. Soon you're going to know why I came. Soon you're going to know the purpose of my coming and understand it more fully. But at this critical moment right now on this evening, I want to show you something. I want to show you who I am. I want to show you my heart. And John is so careful in the way that he tells this story. Now, some of you aren't familiar with the broader context of the Gospel of John. And so I want, to, I want to introduce you a little bit to, to some of the stuff John's already said in this gospel, because to understand this chapter, you need to understand the story that John is telling. In John chapter 1, John introduces us the first time to Jesus, and he doesn't begin at the manger in Bethlehem. He begins in eternity past. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. The word word is the word logos in Greek. It means a thought or an expression. It's poetically John's way of referring to Jesus as the very expression or thought of God. He is the perfect expression of who God is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paradoxical, okay? But we're starting to get a glimpse into that Trinitarian teaching. Three who's, one what, right? He's with God, and He is God. Different in person, one in nature. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. What that means is that when you go to Genesis 1, when you think about what started this whole thing, what, what, what was the creative force that made it happen? It was Jesus. Jesus is the creator of all things. He is the Word of God speaking things into existence. He, he create, and it also tells us that He wasn't a created being. It says that He created everything that was created. He couldn't speak Himself into existence. He is an eternal uh, nature, one with God. Um, glorious, powerful. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in the beginning, when, when God formed a mud man and a mud woman, it was Jesus who breathed life into them. That mystery that we can't define, that thing that we simply call life, is in fact intrinsically tied to the nature of God. It's in Jesus. In him is life. And then Paul gets poetic, and he says, and that life is the light of men. What does that mean? 
What it means is that we were created to live in the life of God in the same way that this world lives under the light of the sun. Right? When the, when the sunflower turns its head to face the passing of the sun to soak in its rays, we were created to center ourselves on the life of God. What that means is that in re- relationship with God, everything else makes sense. We were created to be creative. We were created to be producers. We were created to be lovers. But all of those things only make sense in the, in the, in the realm in which we do them under the light of God's life, that we're centered on his life first. We were created to, to, to find that kind of balance and peace and harmony and joy. God's love being poured out in relationship with us as we simply explore what it means to be created in his image. Now, we know that the problem is that we rebelled against God. We rejected that relationship. We said we will be like God, which basically means we're going to find what only God can give in things that aren't God. We're going to turn to things that aren't God to do for us what only God can do. We're going to look to things that can't fulfill us to fulfill us. And sin, like like a cancer, ruins our ability to understand what gives life. You want to understand the chaos that's in our city. You want to understand the chaos that's in our world. You want to understand the chaos that's in your own heart. You have to look no further than here. Your bearings have been broken. Your, Your compass doesn't work. You're looking to things that aren't God to be God, to give you the fulfillment that only God can give. And you know the insanity that leads to. How many times have you turned to the same exact thing thinking, well, this time maybe it'll satisfy me. This time, maybe it'll actually fulfill me. This time, you keep pursuing the same things and get disappointed every single time, but you keep going back and doing the same things over and over and over again. Why? It's the insanity of sin. It is life broken from the life of God trying to get what only God can give in places he doesn't give it. The good news. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. God didn't walk away from our rebellion. He didn't walk away when we extinguished his glory and creation, by rebelling against him, he was determined to redeem it. And the darkness cannot overcome the light. Jumping to verse 14, God's solution, how is he going to overcome the darkness? And the word became flesh. The logos, the very thought and expression of God became man. And he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. You guys, this is the Jesus that takes off his garment and washes his disciples' feet. The creator of all things. The all-glorious, all-powerful God. Clothed in flesh. Rises to wash his disciples' feet. The Apostle Paul, who wasn't there that night because he wasn't a believer yet, he didn't become a believer until after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But after he became a believer, there's no doubt he studied and heard about these stories. But he wrote this to the Philippians. And I can't help but think that his thoughts were influenced by the events of this night. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, the only way you can have it is in relationship with Jesus. It is not yours naturally. It only comes to you in relationship with Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the word form there means the the exact representation or essence of, 
though he actually existed as God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or selfishly held on to. He didn't look at his experience as being God, glorious, comfortable, worshipped, as something to be selfishly held on to, but instead he emptied himself. Emptied himself of his rights, emptied himself of his experience, of his glory, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus took off the robe of his glory and he put on the towel of humanity to be a servant. And he comes to each one of us to serve us. The point behind this, you guys, is that this is not a momentary humbling. When we read John chapter 13, this isn't Jesus just saying, okay, I'm going to do this so it's an example to you, right? You know how a politician sometimes shows up for a photo op. They'll show up at a ghetto where they're, where they're rebuilding everything. And after the photos are taken, he climbs back into his limo and he leaves and he never comes back, right? That's not Jesus here. Jesus isn't just like putting on the towel of a servant to get a photo op and give an example and then walk away. What he's saying is this isn't just what I do do, it's who I am. I am a foot washing God. I am a humble God. God doesn't demand humility from us because he's proud and he's offended. You guys, he demands humility from us because he is humility. He is humble. Some of you are like, Steve, how can you say that, man? How can you say God is humble? Doesn't he demand everybody worship him? Doesn't he demand everybody revolve their lives around him? Yeah, he does. And if you understand humility, that is, in fact, humility. Because humility isn't thinking bad things about yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like, like sometimes we're so bad at humility. We so don't get it that we think false humility is humility. You know, it's like, like if I'm really fast, is it humble for me to be like, God, oh, I'm not that fast. No, that's lying, okay? That's not humility. That's lying. And usually it's done with false motives, right? Oh, no, I'm not not that great. No, really, you are. You did a great job. No, 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 no. Really, what we're doing is provoking people to praise us because we're too humble to praise ourselves, right? It's pride masking itself as humility. Man, we are just not good at humility. Humility isn't saying bad things about yourself. Humility is being honest about yourself. I know some really smart guys, right? And some of those guys are hard to be around, honestly, because they think their intelligence makes them better than the people around them. Some professions tend to be prone toward that. And if you're in one of them, you know it, (laughs) right? These are the guys that know a lot and they're really smart and they make sure everybody knows it and everybody's just there to serve them sort of a deal, right? But every once in a while, you find somebody who's really, really smart, who combines that intelligence with a deep humility, And I've sat down with those guys and you're sitting there and and, and they're like, Steve, I know more than you about like everything. And I'm like, I think you're right. And they're like, but that doesn't make me better than you. That doesn't mean I'm more valuable than you. And those aren't just words. That's the expression, the genuine expression of their heart. Just because they're better than me in some areas, right? Pride causes us to look at our our strengths and ignore our weaknesses and puff up our strengths and compare it to other people's weaknesses so we can feel better about ourselves. 
Humility allows us to see ourselves as we actually are without having to front or pretend or puff ourselves up. And we're secure even when someone is better than us because we're, we're, we're humble. We're low to the ground. We, we, we don't have to live or die by other people's perception of us. So how is God humble? Well, you guys think about it. God has every reason to be proud. He is the measure of glory and power and wisdom and creativity. If there's anything you're good at, he's better. The only reason you're good at it is because it's an attribute he shared with you. Like you're creative. That's awesome. You created a world lately. You know what I'm saying? You're smart. That's great. Do you know everything? Right? The only reason you have anything good is because he has goodness. It's better. Would it be humble for him to say, don't worship me? No, it would be a lie. And it would set the entire world into the chaos of being imbalanced and broken. For him to simply say, worship me is simply a statement of truth. He is what is ultimately worth the outpouring of our souls. He is the measure of perfection. He is the measure of love. He is all the things we strive to experience and ultimately to be. And to revolve our lives around him is simply to acknowledge that he is that. A humble God simply speaks the truth. But while he speaks the truth, values us. And our humble God, while he is the measure of perfection, didn't reject us didn't stop loving us because of our imperfection, our rebellion, and our sin. See, what's going on here is Jesus is giving them an object lesson with this washing of the feet. It's exactly what he had already done by coming to the earth. He had disrobed himself and put on the clothing of a servant. He had put aside the expression of his glory, his right for comfort, his right to be served, his right to be seen as God, to serve, to take on the lowest of the low tasks, to step into the cesspool of our sin and to become so fully identified with us in our sin that, that he who knew no sin actually became sin for us. The righteous God judging him in our place as our substitute so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You want to talk about dirty jobs. This whole thing gets better when we look at the idea of cleaning in this chapter as well. See, Peter seems to be a little hard-headed in this passage. He gives us a little bit of humor as he just kind of uh, hard-headedly keeps asking questions. But I think he gets a bit, of, a bit of a bad rap. The reality is we're better off with him in the passage because he's asking the right questions. In fact, he's probably asking the questions the other disciples wanted to ask but were too cowardly to say. See, this guy just has the ability to spit it out, right? And so he asks what everybody else is thinking. And he may look bad, but the reality is they're all in the same spot. Take a look at verses 6 through 10. I want to show this to you. He came to Simon Peter, and Simon said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's offended, right? He wants to protect Jesus' dignity. Jesus is like, all right, man, you don't understand it. You'll get it later. Let me do this. Verse 8, Peter says to him, what? Not a chance, man. You're not going to wash my feet. I will protect you from that indignity. And Jesus says to him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. All right, 180. All right, then, wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head. Why don't you give me an entire sponge bath? Let's do this. <laughs> Jesus said to him, stop talking. <laughs> the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you 
are clean. But not every one of you. What does he mean, you are clean? Is he talking about his physical cleanliness? Dude, you smell nice. Is that patchouli? That's nice, right? Is that? No, he's not talking about his physical cleanliness. He's talking about his spiritual cleansing. He's saying you are clean because I have already declared you clean. There's a spiritual cleansing that's already taken place. And then there's a progressive cleansing that needs to keep taking place, a washing of the feet. He is talking about justification and sanctification. Two $10 theological words that I'm going to define real fast. All right, justification is the work of God where we are declared righteous, holy, and just by God, the judge of the universe, where he brings the gavel down and gives the the official decree. You have no fault. You are without blame. Why? Because Jesus took the penalty of your sin. He was your substitute. You are justified, declared right. So when he says to Peter, you're clean, what he's saying is you're justified. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take the penalty of your sin. And I declare you right because you believe in me. You are covered with my righteousness because I will die for your sin and rise again for your righteousness, right? And and this justification is received by faith. That's the difference between Peter and and Judas. It's not that one's better than the other. They're both kind of dorky. I mean, they both make bad decisions, but, but Judas is there using Jesus for his own ends. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He believes in himself. Peter believes in Jesus, and he's following Jesus. Not incredibly well all the time, but he is, right? Because he believes in him. So he's received by faith. And, and, and when you receive that by faith, it's like you've never sinned. Because your substitute took the complete, total penalty of your sin, right? That's why Peter was clean and Judas wasn't. But the washing that Jesus is talking about is more complex. It's not just talking about declaring you right. It's talking about actually making you right. And that process is called sanctification. See, sanctification is the progressive work of God where he makes us to be what he's already declared us to be. In other words, he declares us justified. It's like there's no penalty. It's like you've never sinned. But we know that, that sin still exists in our lives, that we're still faulty and broken and selfish. And so he progressively leads us into greater and greater holiness to become more and more like Jesus. He's freeing us from the power of sin. And he will eventually free us from the presence of sin. So what he's saying is, look, man, you believed in me and it started a process. I cleaned you. I made you right, and now I will continue to clean you. I will serve you. I will change you. I will wash your feet. That image, man, the sovereign God of the universe never took off the towel. He never stopped being a foot-washing God. If you've believed in Jesus, man, he served you on the cross and he continues to serve you by changing you, by working with you and on you, by washing your feet to free you. What he's saying to Peter is, man, I removed your guilt, but I won't stop until I've removed the power and the presence of sin as well. I love you as you are, but I I love you too much to leave you as you are. So the foot washing here points us to how God serves us by changing us, by never giving up on us, by progressively cleaning us. 
ultimately leading us to repentance and change and freedom and truth. You guys pause here and think about it. The sovereign God of the universe, the measure of all that is good and holy and right and glorious and powerful, the one who holds joy and pleasure and fulfillment in his hand, puts on a towel and washes your feet. He comes to you as a servant, carefully, methodically, and as gently as he can, washing your feet, washing away the power, influence, and corruption of sin, setting you free from what enslaves you. You guys remember, sin is not first an action. Sin is first an attitude and a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that ultimately says, I can get what only God gives outside of God. So I don't need to follow him. I don't need to submit to him. I don't need to be like him because I can get it through success or my job or my relationship or these pleasures or whatever it is. I will pursue these things and they will fulfill me. You guys, no matter how many times we find out they don't, don't we keep turning back to them again? Do you find yourself at times doing the same exact thing over and over and over and getting the same result in the end and still hoping that it will change? Whether it's an addiction to pornography or an addiction to anxiety or an addiction to to whatever it is. You guys, at the heart of it, and this is hard news, but it's good news. We love our sin. We love the things that we turn to that aren't God. And we turn them into gods to be worshipped. It's called idolatry. And all of us have idolatrous hearts. We are continually turning things into God. And they simply can't be God. You guys, can you imagine loving someone who every time they leave your presence is looking for another lover? What would that do to your heart? Every time they leave your presence, like when they're in your presence, man, oh, you're the best. I love you, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as they leave, they're looking for another lover. Some of you have lived that story. And you know, you can only live like that so long. There's a limit to human love. It breaks our heart. And the human heart can only suffer. It only has a limited capacity for pain for so long. It would destroy our hearts. And because you know you have a limited capacity to love, I guarantee there are times you believe God has a limited capacity to love. Do you ever think God gets tired of serving you? Do you think that he, he ever says, that's enough, that's the last time. You've come through this door with dirt on your feet one too many times. I was your servant, but you've disrespected me. You don't love me. I'm done with you. You are no longer worthy of my service. You ever been afraid that God's love had a cap that you had exceeded? A limit that you had crossed? Here's the thing, you guys. God never says, I am done with you. Never. Why? Because his service isn't driven by duty. He doesn't do it because he has to. It's not driven by self-fulfillment. A lot of what we call love is actually a desire for self-fulfillment. We love someone so that they will love us back, and we have a limited ability to suffer in that way. God's love is a one-way love. He loves us because he chooses to love us. And once he's chosen to love us, that choice never changes. 
I want to show you one last thing in this chapter that just kind of blew my mind. And it's at the very end of the chapter. Again, Peter helps us out a bit. Um, Starting in verse 36. So Jesus has basically been like, I'm going somewhere. You can't follow me. Let me give you a new command. Love one another like I have loved you, right? This is how people will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Revolutionary words. The only thing Peter heard was, I'm going someplace you can't follow. You know what I'm saying? That's all he heard. And so starting in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? What do you mean I can't follow? Jesus answers, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Do you know who you're talking to, Jesus? It's Peter. I will lay down my life for you. I am ready to die. What he's thinking is that, is that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and it's going to be a life-threatening situation. And Peter's like, I'm in, man. Let's go. Jesus answers, will you da- lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter is so impetuous, so prideful. When he refused to let Jesus wash his feet, it was pride disguised as humility. Here, it's pride disguised as protective devotion. Peter just can't seem to help himself because he can't seem to get beyond himself. He keeps getting in his own way, tripping over his own pride, and ultimately trying to get in Jesus' way. And Jesus looks at him and is like, seriously, dude? Really? You think I'm secure because you love me? You've got a lot to learn about your own heart and about me because you're going to deny me tonight three times before the rooster crows tonight. And when you read the Gospels, that's what happened. You find out. I can't even imagine how that broke Peter's heart, how crushed and devastated Peter must have been because we know later Jesus actually has to go find him on a lonely beach somewhere. Peter has kind of like disappeared. He's off fishing and Jesus has to go find him in isolation and coax him back and be like, dude, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's so afraid to even say he loves him because he's so broken in his confidence in himself. And Jesus is like, finally, you get it. I was never secure because you loved me. You were secure because I loved you. You will fail, but I will not fail you. Verse 36 is wonderful. Peter's like, Lord, where are you going? Why why can't I follow? Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? Why can't I follow? And this is what Jesus says. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me. Notice what he says. Not you might. This isn't hopeful anticipation. This isn't an invitation. Later, I'll give you a chance to follow me. What he says is you will follow me. It's a promise. I know what you're going to do. I know how you're going to fail. But I promise you're going to get there. Because I'm the one taking you. What's going to come is going to take you by surprise. It's not going to take me by surprise. You are secure because I make you secure. 
These chapter divisions in the Bible sometimes get in our way because we think of different chapters like totally different discourses or conversations, but chapter 14 follows right on the heels of chapter 13, right? Jesus looks at him and says, dude, you're going to deny me three times. And then immediately says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. And if God is preparing a place for us, he is preparing us for that place. And he will prepare us for it by washing us and changing us. And he never gets tired. And he never gives up. Next week, we're going to take a look at what it means to be like Jesus in washing one another's feet. This week, I really just wanted to focus on Jesus because I think to understand how we imitate him, we really need to grow in our understanding of who he is, right? Can't imitate somebody you don't understand. Uh, It's one of the challenges, isn't it? Kind of hard to understand this guy. This week, I want to put before us really the humble, glorious God, a God who created the universe and loves you enough to put on a towel and wash your feet. Because I think as we fill our vision with Him, it will ignite our hearts with love. It'll change us. So this week, as we move into our time of response, we're going to do something a little bit different. It's going to make some of you uncomfortable, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, if it makes you uncomfortable enough, you can, you can kind of just go along for the ride. But I'm going to speak a blessing over you. And I simply want you to receive the blessing. So I'm not going to put response questions up this week. I'm going to speak this blessing over you. I want you to receive it. And then we're going to go into a time of response where you're simply going to sit in it and let the Spirit of God speak to you. Something I learned when I was visiting Kyrgyzstan last year, um, totally different culture, totally different world, but they did this thing at the end of the meal where they would cup their hands and, and one person would say a prayer of blessing. And they would take it and then they would wash it over themselves. And I thought it was really cool. And it actually has become part of my devotional prayer time. I love to speak the word. That's kind of what I've done is is in my prayer time, I'll speak the word. And I find myself like really like cupping, like I close, there's no gaps in my fingers. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to lose any of it, you know? So I cup it. And then when you're done, you just wash it over you. You accept it. You receive it. It becomes part of who you are. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to do that. As I speak this blessing over you, you don't have to do it. You can just put your head down and and whatever. If you're not a believer and you're just checking this thing out, we're weird, okay? And we're okay with that. And you don't have to do this. It's a a safe place to just ask questions. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's totally cool. But followers of Christ, I'm just going to encourage you, okay? So I'm going to speak the blessing over you. And then at the end, I'm going to say, and all God's people said, and you're going to say, amen. The word amen means let it be. It is true, right? I reckon this to be true for me, amen. So it's a statement of faith, not just a response, not just a a meaningless word. It's It's a proclamation of faith. This is true for me, okay? So let me, um, let me do this. Put your heads down, cup your hands if you're gonna do it with me. If not, just receive it. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this part. Because he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response and then we'll share communion together. Father God, we thank you that you are a humble God. Jesus, we thank you that though you existed in the form of God, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in dignity, equal in essence, You did not regard equality with God, something to be selfishly grasped and never released, but instead emptied yourself, taking on the form of a servant by becoming man. And so fully identifying with us in our brokenness that you could die in our place as our substitute. We thank you that you have served us and that you continue to serve us. That you never grow tired, that you never give up, that your your, your love never fails. Lord, renew our love for you as we simply consider your love for us. Ignite us with passion for what truly matters. Free our desires to desire, to long for, to love what is truly worth our worship and devotion. May your light break into our darkness. Consume us. Unmake us and remake us in the image of Jesus.